My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Recording in progress. Dr. Meixner, welcome to the show. Oh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, would you mind, uh, for the listeners... Could you talk a little bit about your history and like how you started to play euphonium and like where you went to school? Yeah, um, well, I, I I started, you know, in the beginning band uh, back in sixth grade and I actually started on the euphonium. I know a lot of people um, start on other instruments and, and switch over, but that was my uh, beginning and, uh, you know, played played through high school, and then I went off to college, but I did not major in music. Um, at the time, I was more interested in other things, and I majored in business organizational management at Western Illinois University. It's just in my hometown of Macomb. And so uh, but then about the last year or so, um, and I was very active playing my euphonium and, and trombone as well at the university, and um, I just kind of realized that that was my passion and that's what I needed to do. I went ahead and finished the business degree. And then I went on to University of Kentucky, uh, where I studied with Skip Gray. Um, and at Western, I studied with Hugo Maglioco. Um, and so I studied with Skip. Uh, I've got a music education degree there. And then I went and taught band um, down in uh, Cobb County, Georgia. And I had the great fortune of working with um, uh, fa uh, fantastic um, middle school band director down there, John Palmer, who is actually at Walton High School now as the head director. It's a big powerhouse program down there. Learned oh. a lot from him. It's great. And I was only there for a year. And then uh, Brian Bowman offered me um, a teaching fellowship at North Texas. So uh, my wife and I moved there and did my master's and doctorate there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's up through my schooling. Um, and then uh, I got a job up at uh, Slippery Rock University up in Pennsylvania. And I played in the River City Brass Band. I was stand partners with Matthew Murchison. He was principal. That's awesome. I was second euphonium. Oh, man, it's just. Yeah, that's a powerhouse section. <laughs> yeah, that guy's great, man. Great. Then I took a job here at High Point University in North Carolina. And this is my 11th year. It's hard to believe. But... Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you enjoy the most about um, your music education, like through your schooling, especially in your time at university? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was uh, afforded a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, I, I studied with some great teachers. Uh, I worked under some some great conductors, you know, which is more of what I do now uh, is conducting. So when I look back at the, sort of the training I received and the experiences I had there. Uh, you know, when I was at um, Kentucky, uh, I was able to get a grant, a research grant there as an undergrad wow. and to record an album. So, I mean, that was an incredible opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, Can and you then, talk a little bit about recording Genesis? Because that's when I think of like, well, when I think of your euphonium output in particular, and maybe it's because like that's the one I came into contact first. That's the album I think of. And particularly like the recording of Ellerby is like stunning. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Uh, it helps to have a great pianist. <laughs> so, uh, Carol Conger was, and she still is incredible. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to have her. And so we did a number of things and on the album and then a piece uh, with the wind ensemble there at Kentucky, Richard Clary. Um, again, to talk about great experiences, you know, he's at Florida state now conducts the wind symphony down there, but he was at Kentucky during my time got a chance to do that and then skip had me uh do a tune with the tuba ensemble there so mm -hmm. so yeah it was sort of a you know we did a session uh well a number of sessions with carol and then you know those those were added in so so that was yeah and that was funded you know mostly by uh the undergraduate research program at the university so wow it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened otherwise so cool 
That's awesome. Uh, so you've put out this album, you've studied with all of these great artists. Why continue to pursue euphonium before you switch to conducting? Um, well, I, I just, I love playing. Um, and that was sort of, you know, my artistic outlet. Um, uh, I had a lot of great opportunities. A lot of, had a lot of great people to work with. Um, you know, when you can collaborate with some really fine artists and people that you really like, you know, it's something to continue with, but that's what I wanted to do. You know, uh, I wanted to study performance. Um, and you know, it, as a conductor, you know, which is what I do. That's 90% of what I do right now uh, is yeah. conducting. And, you know, uh, you learn what to do with your hands and all these things and all these skills as a conductor. But at the end of the day, I believe when you're up on the podium, it's it's you and your musicianship. And that's what you have because you're reacting mm -hmm. instantaneously to the things that you hear. Uh, and, and that training was for my teachers, you know. So I look back yeah. at all the great experiences I had in the lessons like, you know, Brian Bowman. I mean, that stuff's in my head all the time mm -hmm. uh, on the podium so yeah that uh i heard mallory thompson say almost that exact same thing a couple of weeks ago at the illinois conducting symposium and i think that's really important um especially like i don't know if you've noticed this i i've noticed a trend in music ed students in particular that like practicing and performing is secondary to them because that's they claim like, oh, well, I'm going to be a teacher. I don't need to know how to do this. But it's like, how are you going to teach your kids how to perform? Yeah, well, that's a pet peeve of mine. That's a pet peeve of mine. So there's a little bit of a button there. But, um, you know, the way I look at it is how can you teach someone else to reach a level that you yourself have never attained? Now, I mean, you yeah. know, my experiences at North Texas playing in Eugene Corporon's Wind Symphony, I mean, that was... Uh, an incredible opportunity awesome. and, and being a part of that wind symphony and that detail and that level of excellence with that level of conductor um, translates. But, you know, uh, look, at the end of the day, I believe that, um, you know, as a conductor, especially of student groups, you better darn well be the best musician in the room. Now, I also conduct a professional group, North Carolina Brass Band. And with professionals, you better darn well be at least one of the best musicians in the room because they can read that. And um, yeah, it'll it'll go south for you real quickly. Can you talk a bit about um, how you came to North Carolina Brass Band? Because you founded that group, didn't you? Yeah. So, you know, I moved down here from the Pittsburgh area, um, had the, all the experiences with River City Brass Band. And in my um, second year, I started to plan for this group. I uh, took a lot of the ideas I got from River City and other things along the way. And yeah, we founded the group, um, put together this this group. You know, the first thing I wanted to come out with with something um, right away, something big and, and trying to attract musicians to be in the group. If I say, Hey, let's get together and play a concert, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get the, the top players in the area, but I was able to, said, let's form this group. We're going to, first thing we're going to do is record an album. Mm -hmm. I got their attention, you know? And so that's what we did. We recorded an album. It's called first in flight. You can check that out. Um, and, um, yeah, and then we just started an annual concert series, and and the group has continued to improve. We've had some, you know, great success. Uh, the players in there, I, I I'm just, you know, I pinch myself every day uh, with with the roster that we have in there. It's just it's crazy uh, how great these musicians are, and so we have That's a good awesome. time. Yeah. That's cool. How so? When I interviewed Hiram Diaz, he and I talked about how the role of the phonium in the wind ensemble versus the brass band is extraordinarily different. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? What Hiram and I discussed was how, like, in the wind ensemble in particular, and this is something I've noticed, is that um, because the solidity of the tone needs to be really, really consistent across all registers in order to make sure that the euphonium is complementing every instrument it's paired with. And especially in a work like Stars and Stripes, where it happens every like almost two and a half measures, um, that's very important versus like the brass band tradition is much more about like, can you change the color and the timbre of your sound in order to explore the breadth of possibilities given that the the instrumentation of the ensemble is so much more unidimensional compared to something like a wind ensemble or an orchestra. 
You know, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, and then, that, you know, Hiram's, he's, he's great and a very intelligent guy, great thinker. Absolutely. I haven't even thought of it necessarily in that way. Uh, the Euphonium, of course, is, is uh, the solo Euphonium is really the second most important book uh, in the group. It's the tenor solo voice. But yeah, you know, in particular with an orchestra, um, the, the, the range is much greater. You know, and then it starts to compress a bit when you move into into some of these other realms. But yeah, the euphonium, you know, and the brass band. Sometimes it takes a little bit of edge to cut, you know, uh, across across the uh, ensemble, and um, and then the solo role, you know, it's a little bit different in terms of not just standing out front of the group, but uh, you know, playing in, in that respect. So yeah, having played in a brass band for uh, you know, I played in brass bands uh, for a long time, but I do think of um, shading the sound and changing the sound. Um, depending on on what the role is uh, with vowel manipulation and other types of things. But um, yeah, I guess I just think of just having played euphonium, you know, and studied it for so long, yeah. just increasing the, the colors and the timbres that are available just to make it more interesting. You know, yeah. I, I, I think of that in terms of creating an even sound across the entire range because i feel like if you can't do that then you can't manipulate you know <laughs> you want to be the one in charge you don't want the horn to be in charge so yeah. um so yeah it, it is a different approach um uh for for sure i, I would agree with what Hiram says there and that's actually um yeah i agree with that i think that's some, some really good thoughts yeah i i was really struck by that especially so one of the groups i play in here at illinois is um the illinois improvisers exchange it's a contemporary improvised music ensemble it's gnarly uh, <laughs> and Great, like, yeah and one of the things i've re really come to appreciate about playing with a group like that is i mean especially when you play an instrument with a timbre as complex as euphonium it's really easy to bury everything else. like our instrumentation right now is Oud, piano, Birnbau, whatever Nikolai brings, whatever Dimitro brings, two French horns, euphonium, and mixed percussion. So it's like, I mean, it's it's such an eclectic group and really easy to just, I don't think it's as difficult for the horns because like being directional, you're getting a reflected sound off of a barrier most of the time, but especially for like how present the euphonium is. If I'm not occupying like, a soloist role or the bass role it's so easy to bury everybody yeah no that's that's cool man i mean that sounds like a pretty cool um uh you know instrumentation and uh in learning to improvise that that is so key and i can tell you i'm not very good at it <laughs> one of my many flaws as a musician so I, I, right wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a flaw. I think it's taught really poorly. Like my teacher studied with a composer named Pauline Oliveros. Is she somebody you've heard of? Um, I know the name, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Pauline is a contemporary of Terry Riley and Steve Reich and a bunch of cats out in California. And one of the things that she always taught and that she taught my teacher is that like the best thing you can do is start. And if you're like spending too much time, just like occupying anywhere except like the exact present moment you're in, that's where your improv, your improvisation starts to deteriorate. It's a really interesting philosophy and it's like pretty esoteric in the grand scheme of things, which is kind of cool. And so as I've like tried to embrace that, idea of like what improvised music is and then reinforce it with structures like jazz it's i think it's helped me develop a lot but one of the questions that it's raised for me is do you think the current conservatory model for music schools encourages young euphonium players to experiment enough because for a lot of people that i mean a lot of young players that i meet Panamime is kind of the Glenn Gary leads of euphonium repertoire. And that's not to say that it's not a cool piece. It's definitely really fun. But I mean, like, if that's as good as it gets, I think that says a lot about the state of our repertoire. Yeah. So your question is um, in, in terms of a conservatory model on how it uh, for euphonium in, yeah. in particular. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I I studied at, uh, you know, public institutions, you know, uh, sort of liberal arts based institutions. And so I don't have any direct experience with that. Yeah, um, but I mean, a, a liberal arts music school is based on a conservatory model because sure. they're evaluated by the same advisory boards. Yeah. 
Well, I, I do think that, you know, and I think this is this is changing, uh, at least from what I have seen, is to have some more flexibility um, mm -hmm. in the degree. I think, you know, a one size fits all sort of approach doesn't really work, I think, for everybody. Uh, I know here at High Point University, we we tweaked our, our um, model, our BA degree, uh, to add a lot of electives and a lot of flexibility within the degree. And if nothing else, you know, if you're a euphonium player and you're trying to make it, you know, you better have some pretty good business and marketing skills uh, along the way. Yes. That should be a part of it. You know, that should be a part of it. Uh, improvisation, I think, is is critical. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a lot of that uh, when I was young. I sought out some opportunities and did some. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of this traditional, like, these are the courses you take. This is what's going to be best for you. I do think there's some validity to that because, you know, uh, people who've been doing this a long time know what's best in some ways, but not all of us are the same. You know, what you want to get out of it is different than what I did, you know, and anyone else, the same thing. So, so I do think there needs to be, uh, there needs to be more of that at some places, um, not having been intimately familiar with all the different programs out there, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that's my two cents on, on that. Sure. Um, I have a question. Oh, shoot. I'm gonna forget. No, I'm not. Um, so with like this idea of, uh, like trying to be more interdisciplinary, I guess, do you think it behooves performers to, or I guess I'm of the opinion that it behooves performers to, um, study music composition and it behooves comp uh, composers to study more music performance? Because I find that the two intertwined are greater than the sum of their parts in as much as like a composer who's regularly performing is not only going to have more ideas for like what to write in their music, but more empathy and how to like make sure their parts are made in such a way that it's easy for performers to read. In as much as like performers who have had to write have then realized the level of detail you can go into in writing a piece of music and then spend more time trying to figure out exactly how they want to perform something. Yeah, um, that's great. That's a very interesting thought. Um, you know, that's not something I delved in uh, much yeah. in composition, but I, I do think that that brings up, you know, uh, a lot of interesting yeah. thoughts. And if nothing else, you explore different instruments and learn sort of how the combination of those instruments and as euphonium players, that's what we need to be doing. You know, yes. I, I think for the future of our instrument, and a lot of people are doing this, uh, is is chamber playing with with other you know different combinations mm -hmm. of instruments, exposing our instrument to different audiences, um, as opposed to just kind of performing for each other. <laughs> yeah, I think is a you know sometimes it is a good thing. It's a fun thing, but um, perhaps maybe not. Um, uh, is what's going to sort of expand our reach. Yeah, uh, Lynch LaDuke and Gail Robertson and I all talked about that in, uh, in my interviews with them. And I guess this is a really good opportunity for me to ask, um, so when you started working on your album Praxis, what was the artistic idea behind that? Because I would say that's very much a euphonium album that's not just for euphonium players. Yeah, you know, I just, I guess I had done so many recitals uh, with piano you know which is great but you know i don't know how you feel but um i can go listen to a, a fantastic um performer on any instrument with piano and after a little while you know uh the, the palette wants something else and so i started doing a little bit with percussion and i i, I loved it you know, you're talking about you know creating different sounds and, and different things i mean the number of sounds that can be created by a percussion ensemble it is literally limitless you know yes. um and so i got involved uh, doing some things uh performed i had a couple pieces written for uh percussion uh quartet and quintet with euphonium and then when i moved here to north carolina i got um involved with uh, a fantastic musician uh, nathan daughtry virtuoso percussionist and a uh, great composer is written for um, a variety of, um, you know, ensembles and, and solo instruments. And so he and I sort of talked and came up with some ideas. And um, it just, I don't know, it was more interesting. Um, mm -hmm. It was more interesting to me. And we had a lot of fun. And I like making music with people, you know, more people. Yeah. And it allowed me to sort of, I don't know, get a little more creative in the process. Uh, almost every 
uh, I think all but one piece on that album was either commissioned, written for me, or I was part of a commission um, to, awesome. to create some, yeah, and, and getting to work with a composer too, you know, that yeah. that's fun. Um, and, and, you know, every composer I've ever worked with um, always takes input from the performer and, and, you know, the piece ends up being a little bit of you too. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, no, I'm proud of that album. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, there's some great music on there and um yeah. yeah, I think one of the things you really hit on that I took away from it, too, is that like the orchestrational variety of that album makes it dramatically easier listening. And not to say that, like, obviously, Genesis is great listening, too, but I think so many recitals, so many performances, I mean, they like you said, they get stale. Because if you just have instrument and piano, you have an extraordinarily limited set of timbres. Versus like even a concerto with an orchestra, you're talking about dozens, if not hundreds of different timbres to select from. And then you're going to reduce something like the Ellerby or the Cosma concerto to euphonium and piano. I mean, like, yeah, it has a lot of the same flair, but it's so closed. Um, and But the percussion ensemble is still collaborative, but so much more elaborate in, in terms of the timbres you can draw to. Um, I'm curious, uh, have you delved at all into the trend of performing with electronics? I know it's not super collaborative, but like I'm struck by the music by folks like Benjamin Dean Taylor. And um, I mean, as a composer, I've been writing a lot for Euphonium and Electronics because it's great to not have to hire an accompanist when you're on a graduate student budget, let me tell you. <laughs> but getting getting so bored by just the idea of like, okay, instrument with piano or unaccompanied, it's just, it's to me, it's very stale. Yeah, no, I, I actually haven't, I haven't uh, delved into that. Um, but I do find it interesting. You know, Ryan McGeorge is, is someone uh, who's done uh, quite a bit with that, a very creative mind. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You're creating, you're creating what, what you want to perform. And, and so, um, no, but yeah, that's not something I've done, uh, but I have great respect for those uh, who venture into that for sure. Do you think um, more euphonium chamber groups should try to operate on a call for scores model rather than like a let's perform music that's already written? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's create new stuff, you know, uh, work with composers. And again, you know, we're talking about giving our instrument um, sort of new voice and, and opportunities. Um, mm working to to create but then again you know i mean there's it's, if you create some interesting uh instrumentation with your friends you know hey i have a friend who's a flute player and a saxophone player and a violinist well yeah. you're not going to find any rep for that you know yeah if you have people who you love to play with and i love to have a good time with and i'm sure you've heard this from from others um go out and find some people or, or do the music like as you say you know delve into the compositional side of of it and um that sort of thing as, as well so yeah, yeah there's great value to that yeah i, I guess something that straight is uh the load bang ensemble a group that you know they're based in new york yeah i'm, I'm not familiar so load bang is nuts i got to write for them during my bachelor's degree and uh their instrumentation is trumpet bass clarinet trombone and baritone voice it's a really wild group and the music that they play is exclusively derived from a call for scores model so they have a summer festival where composers can come and write for them and um obviously like you pay money to go to the festival but like when they do a competition i think the entry fee is usually like 25 dollars, and then the like I think the top five or six get performances and uh, recordings. And then like the top two get like a modest cash prize. But like so many young composers are going like just for the performance credit. I mean, even like collegiate, like early, like teaching uh, level composers would probably go just, especially for an ensemble of that capability, just like, I mean, I could do it for the exposure, I guess. But, uh, but I mean, so not having a giant budget but something that funds the chamber group while still getting you like tons and tons of rep and okay yeah maybe like some of these pieces aren't like what you're looking for right away but you never know five six years down the line well maybe piece number 10 wasn't what you were looking for then but it's what you're looking for right now yeah that's fantastic yeah um having that sort of model and and uh, energy to do to do that and like you said you know a lot of composers especially young hungry hungry composers just want to get their stuff played and yeah. uh, 
you know, and that's, you know, a little bit what I had on that, on that Praxis album. And it's like, wow, that was a cool piece, man. You know, I didn't know you were capable of that, you know, sort of thing. Um, so no, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it strikes me as something as like an interesting way to push the euphonium into like the clutches of the orchestral canon. And I mean, this is something I've found during my research. I don't know how much I mentioned this to you before, but so the, the idea for this project originally was I'm going to interview all of these euphonium players that I admire and I'm going to see what they like about the instrument and then like write a piece that tries to capture all of that in a way that like orchestral people would want to look at. And then I started looking at manuals of orchestration about like the historical value of the euphonium and the way they wrote about it. And what I found is a gaping chasm of not only tuba and euphonium, but like basically the entire brass wind family, like composers kind of like horn and trumpet and the rest they're like, yeah, we could take it or leave it. And it's really kind of interesting, like the quality of literature, even on like how to write for tuba is so lacking. I found like, the textbook that they use at Juilliard says that like tuba can't play below pedally flat and that Wagner wrote tuba too high. And I'm just like, well, hold up. So <laughs> you're telling me that like Prokofiev five and Meistersinger are out of the question and they're probably like the two most common excerpts for tuba. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. It's nuts. And well, and it's, it's been kind of interesting seeing like the history of how they've written about instruments like euphonium, because like, um, I, I think I have 10 or 11 orchestration textbooks on my desk right now. And between all of them, they can't really define the difference between baritone horn, tenor tuba, and like uh, a baritone sax horn and a euphonium. They just kind of all list them as like, these are basically all the same and we can't really tell the difference, which is kind of crazy to me. <laughs> Because, yeah. well, I mean, I, I spent some time, like, building and repairing instruments, so I can, like, pick oh. each one out of a lineup, like, pretty easily. And not yeah. to mention the timbre of them. It's kind of nuts. Well, yeah, I mean, just at the most basic levels, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the sound that you're getting is just very, very different, so. Yeah, it's, it's just nuts. And so the way this uh, project has kind of taken shape now is, um, I'm doing all of these interviews, compiling like what people think is interesting, what needs to happen in order for Euphonium to like kind of take a bigger place on the stage because uh, Hiram and I were having this chat at the Midwest Clinic this year. We're, I'm kind of of the opinion that like a lot of people have taken the posture of like Euphonium is underappreciated, which I think it is, but I think a much more optimistic posture would be we happen to play an instrument that has its most codified ancestor being invented around 1840 which means we're on the ground floor yeah and there's yeah. a long and there's a long way to go and a lot we can contribute to that which is really exciting yeah that is that's a great way to look at it i think yeah and and so what i wanted to do was codify kind of like a present state of the euphonium which i found is extraordinarily enthusiastic which is great having positive energy um outline that this is an interesting symptom of what I think is a problem with how orchestration is taught at universities. We can get into that in a second. And then um, supply a good, like missing chapter of orchestration on what the euphonium is, what it does, what it's good at, what each of the registers sound like, formatted just like the orchestration textbooks that are common in universities today. So that when composers look at it, they go like, oh, this looks like Adler. I know how to use this. <laughs> and then um, have a, a piece that goes with it that's a solo for euphonium and orchestra to prove not only does all of this work in theory, but it works in practice too. Yeah, that's great, man. Very cool. Uh, and certainly, you know, hopefully would be utilized. Um, would you be looking at including it just as a separate text or as part of um what i'm hoping well so i'm presenting everything at a lecture recital this uh later this semester and then uh i'm going to record it and post it on youtube and then i'm going to go ask the ita if they'd be willing to host it on their website for free like yeah. get the handout and then the lecture recital too so that uh composers can go and actually like listen to the lecture where i, I happen to have access to a tenor tuba and a baritone and like obviously my euphonium and then c tuba here on campus so being able to go down the line and show like 
this is how the timbre is different and why you need to use different mouthpieces for each one and why and these are the ones you're most likely to see and this is why players tend to gravitate towards euphonium rather than the other ones um with the exception obviously being tuba because that gets played way more <laughs> good for you that that that's important work uh, great work thank you for doing that yeah, uh, it's exciting um and it's fun to be a part of especially like being this specific about it because like, and kind of what I suggested, like naming the problem, I think is this kind of centralization around like the idea of like at music school, we teach orchestral music and like the chamber music of orchestral music. When in reality, like you, when you get a, a book on orchestration, it's like, okay, I have five and a half pages on how to write for bass flute, but the odds that I'm ever going to write for bass flute is very slim unless I really want to write for bass flute. <laughs> yeah. But we have a paragraph on what the euphonium is good at when like you could go an entire career just writing grade one and grade two band music and write a lot of euphonium parts. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which almost suggests like academia wants composers to leave money on the table. <laughs> and the really ironic thing is like, the roots of this argument were dictated in a critical review of an orchestration textbook in 1930 by Aaron Copeland, where he said, what's the point in making an orchestration textbook that tries to go through all of the instruments and all of these composers, if you're going to reduce somebody like Stravinsky to three pages? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Why, why do it in one volume? Just make more volumes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. And I honestly, I think that's just good pedagogy because like, I think if a composer is going to school to study music, like, I mean, yeah, learning to write for orchestra is important, but if you're leaving without knowing how to write for band, brass band, big band, choir, all of that stuff, like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, it's, it's definitely limiting yourself. There's no question about that. Yeah. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how the project's taken shape. Um, well, that's great. I mean, in terms of doctoral work, you know, um, yeah, well, and this is my master's oh, thesis. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I haven't even started my doctorate. Oh, I thought, I thought you were the main student. Well, good for you. Well, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you, uh, had that impression. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think that's a, uh, uh, a very valuable work and particularly at the master's level so who, who knows if you're studying for doctorate you know yeah well that? you know it's really interesting I've, I've been thinking about doing so my bachelor's degrees in composition and i took all the i took the euphonium performance curriculum too um to really scratch that itch because i i've i caught the uh the brass junkies bug pretty early and one of the things i've always really admired about um lance leduc is his and well, and Sam Palafian too, because I think he really got the roots of it from that. But this idea of like classical musicians need to be operating a little more on a singer-songwriter business model. Not to say that like the old style of playing and making an income is off the table. I think it's just part of a portfolio of something bigger. Yeah. And so um, that's the philosophy I've been approaching Euphonium with since like 2017, which has been really cool. And really interesting trying to play like a lot more music by living composers writing tons of new repertoire especially with electronics and um i mean now that like a really good music engraving software is available for free in something like MuseScore, i mean like the means of production are very much seized in as far as like what things can be made of creatively because if you don't have a lot of piano skills you can still write really complex interesting music which i think is fascinating um yeah but, lance is uh, a brilliant guy you know and and uh, incredibly creative guy and i mean yeah. you know, he's i uh, don't know for sure exactly what he's got going on but i'm sure a number of revenue streams uh yeah. and i think it's important you know just he's, he's mentioning um you know career as a performer good point mm -hmm. that euphonium you know, uh, you know, if you're trying to raise a family as a euphonium player, you, you better be in the military uh, or else you're going to have some 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 issues. So, you know, in terms of my uh, side of things, it's been uh, as an educator mostly um, and now, you know, at the university level and as a as a conductor. And that is is my primary source. Uh, mm -hmm. And euphonium is kind of something else I do, you know. Yeah. Uh, and not necessarily by choice, but that's just 
that, that the unfortunate side of, of, of things by being a euphonium player at least at this point yeah that's something i've noticed a lot too even just like being involved in the master's degree program here at illinois like i spend a lot of my time teaching with the marching band which i love i spend a lot of my time fixing instruments because that's something i added to my portfolio career uh just after undergrad i went and did an apprenticeship up at minnesota state college southeast in red wing which is like the premier tech school for um instrument repair like basically in the world i mean we had students like moving to the u.s from south korea in order to study wow. there it was pretty nuts and the guys up there are incredible and i think part of well part of it is the culture of of the program and the quality of the education and the quality of the technicians that teach there but a lot of it also i think is uh all of the techs there are still active performing musicians and so there's a lot of empathy to like okay well you, you can't just like take the dents out and it's done like you right. need to be extraordinarily careful about this because distorting the internal taper of that tube means that that instrument resonates differently which is yeah really, i mean it's Maybe so fascinating on, yeah you're uh, developing a lot of skills and uh, good for you um i think you're on the right path with that thanks yeah it, it's it's been a really interesting process but what i've come around to is like well, this is a joke amongst the teaching assistants here. Every time I have to introduce myself to like a new group of students, I say like, yeah, I know, like my master's degree says euphonium performance, but that's like not really what I do. I do like a lot of other stuff too. <laughs> it's really kind of interesting. One, well, I've learned to appreciate that like a degree in performance is so open-ended. You get so many electives that you can kind of make of it what you will. I spend so much of my time with the like contemporary musicians, the contemporary composers, the experimental musicians, and like going to all of the composition stuff that I can. Because I think digging into like how music is constructed and what it is and how to recognize patterns in it is, I mean, like uh, that, that just sounds like an infinitely better use of my time. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, like, I, I mean, like, I'm going to spend time in the practice room. But if you don't, I think if you don't spend time, like, with the minutia of things like you can kind of get away from what the power of music can be but that's the fun part too is like coming back and realizing like yeah you can look at all these patterns but what matters is like is it fun to listen to <laughs> yeah yeah exactly what, what, what's our role you know I yeah. mean, what do we do as musicians you know yeah and entertaining a, listeners so. yeah and that's that's the biggest lesson i've come away with this year i've i've been meeting with so many conductors and the big thing each of them has told me at some point is you know all of the textural stuff is really cool music has come a long way concert music is getting so complex and so interesting but like i'd kill for a good melody <laughs> uh, well you know it's it, i live on both sides of the academic yeah. side and the professional side and I, I tell you you know at the university level of course, we want to attract audiences and do things, but there's a, more room for experimentation because we're not yes. selling tickets. At least at my university, we're not selling tickets, and my job mm -hmm. is not reliant upon that. But with the brass band, mm -hmm. if we're not selling tickets, we're done. Yeah, and, you know, and people want to come out and, and and hear music that's entertaining. Yeah, we delve into the pops thing quite a bit, but mm -hmm. um, but you got to dangle some raw meat in front of the musicians too, and so yeah. they like they like some of that. So it is a challenge. Uh, it is a challenge, but at the end of the day, you know, when my patrons, um, audience members uh, come up to me and say, you know, this music uh, took me to a place in my youth or mm -hmm. this, this music, you know, took me away from some sort of issue that I've been dealing with. Um, I really felt like I escaped reality for an hour and a half today to be here. Thank you for this and that. And at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know. Um, I've some come a long way around this uh, to this way of thinking, but I think that's what we do. Uh, yeah. And I think the experimentation in music and exploring new things is absolutely critical. Yeah. But, you know, so, but people want to hear it. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think the, the way forward is figuring out a way to find a balance between the two. Somebody who comes to mind, I think, at least, especially for me, is David Muslanka. I think he really nailed like how to do the super experimental or at least pretty experimental stuff while really making sure like the melodic line is super important. And I think yeah. that's I think that's why his music will have so much lasting power. I mean, David's only recently departed from us, but like, I mean, the, I know everybody I know is 
or almost everybody I know is exhilarated by Symphony 4. And I think yeah. that's part of why it's like there's a very primal urge to have like some kind of uh, something that tethers you to the music, I guess. Because if it's too atmospheric, it's like, okay, this is really cool, but like throw it in a film. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Where do you see uh, the euphonium going over the next 20 years? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, and of course, the answer to that question is it depends. Uh, you know, but I, I think I would like to see it become more involved in in chamber playing um, mm. and more involved in, in other types of things. I think, um, you know, and, and the fun of it is, again, it's not a, really a huge part of my life uh, at this point. Um, I don't, you know, playing the euphonium is a small percentage of my professional life. So, um, but I will say that I think for some time, um, I'm not sure exactly how to say this other than I feel like we've been writing for each other and performing for each other. And hey, look what the euphonium can do. This is cool. And that's awesome. But let's let's get it out <laughs> to other people uh, yeah. so that we can you know try to get 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 things going. I think with in terms of orchestras, you know, they're always going to be playing Beethoven, Mozart, nineteenth um, century Romantic works that just don't call for the instrument. Um, and as much as as cool as a lot of the new music is being written, but I, like I say, the selling tickets, you know, aspect and people hear these sorts of things so over the next 20 years i would like to see it involved more in in uh, different um uh, chamber style performances you know solo literature there's a lot out there there's stuff being created you know you're doing some some interesting things there uh as well but these opportunities just don't come to yeah. most people you know you mentioned the cosma thing you know most of us just don't have an orchestra we can drag around with us and yeah. uh, perform you know at will so I think um, chamber playing has more opportunities to be heard in more venues and um, mm -hmm. to more variety of people, mm -hmm. music enthusiasts and just sort of general public type of thing. So that, that's where I'd like to see people exploring. Yeah, I think that would be really cool and really special. And I think that that's a really great point that like... I mean, playing for each other is, I mean, it's great for developing enthusiasm, but I think it also, uh, kind of like what I said earlier, it kind of leads to this mentality where like pantomime is the Glenn Gary leads of, of the instrument. When like Gail Robertson has a really interesting paper about um, the euphonium tradition in the wind ensemble of being more of a cellist or a tenor soloist role rather than like something that just doubles the tuba at the octave, which is kind of what it's become, especially in contemporary literature. and. Not to say it doesn't do that job extraordinarily well. See Holtz for Sweden E flat, perfect yeah. <laughs> example. But it does a lot of other things in that piece too. Um, but uh, something that comes to mind is this idea of like, okay, well, um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> this idea of, well, okay, so it, pantomime is really incredibly influenced by the vocalari to an extreme degree like it's a slow section and then a fast section and the fast section is 10 8 for a chunk of time like i mean yes that's extraordinarily like big picture and conceptual there's a lot of intricate de detail we could get into uh, inside of that but if we're just kind of writing conceptually the same piece over and over that says a lot about the state of the instrument yeah and why not try something new i mean like Yes, like composers need to make money. You need to make things that people will like. But as we've talked about just a minute ago, like you can have one foot in the water of contemporary expressionists and interesting, uh, like wild textural music, and the leg inside or a foot inside the realm of melodic music too, and combine those very well. Um, and I'm I'm struck by. Uh, a phrase I heard from a scholar named Herbert Brun. He's a composer who studied in uh, Israel and Europe for a long time. And he has a treatise on uh, music composition where he said that composers should be aspiring to write music that they don't know they enjoy yet. Because if you're writing music that's too much of the same, music will stagnate. And I thought, I've, I only heard this at a, a guest lecture um about two weeks ago, but it's everything I've done for the last two weeks has been informed by that. 
because I think hmm. it's such an interesting way of viewing what it is to create new art. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, on the other side of that is, you know, as we're looking at um, what can be done for the instrument, it's these creative people that are out there, the Lance LaDukes, the Matthew Murchison's, you know, the Ryan McGeorge's, uh, the, the, mm. so many others, you know, and yeah. you start naming names, you always leave people out, but um, writing music that they enjoy playing and they enjoy writing the passion that they bring to it rubs yeah. off on others. Um, yeah. Whether that be the people that they're writing for, that they're playing with, or the audiences that they're they're playing for. And I think, you know, that type of passion when 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 people can really show um, how much they love what they're doing, mm -hmm. it transfers. It transfers to the people who they're with. So yeah, and I think one of the things I've noticed about. Uh, the young cohort of like emerging artists in euphonium as like folks like me jonah zimmerman if he's somebody you know he's a buddy of mine um andrew salee and folks like that is like there's a lot of us where military band is only vaguely on the radar if it's on the radar at all yeah. which is really kind of interesting yeah it fits it, some people well and others yeah but i mean i think like 15 years ago that would have been unconceivable Versus like you see people like Matthew Murchison or Demandre Thurman who, uh, or Gail Robertson who have like these incredible careers as like interdisciplinary musicians doing all kinds of stuff and their brand isn't like, oh, I played with the Air Force Band for X amount of years. And again, not that that's bad. That's really cool in its own right. But um, that things can be a lot more open-ended. Yeah. 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 Demandre, you know, he... He's, he's, he's one of my heroes, man. Um, and he's got so many things going on and everything he does, he's exceptionally good at. Um, and so he brings so much more to the table than, than just being a euphonium artist. You know? Yeah. When Hiram and I talked uh, on the podcast, one of the things we talked about is like some of, well, I mean, we might not have said this specifically, but like some of Demandre's projects are almost too good and what i mean by that is like the music is so awe-inspiring that players that are not ready for it are like i'm gonna play barfield <laughs> and then and one of the things hiram said is like that i mean the endurance you need to make it through a piece like that in one piece is insane i think a lot of it, musicians are in danger of like injuring themselves which is like it's so crazy because it's like okay like i love this music so much i don't the only thing i want is to be able to execute this and like show everybody how much i love it but i have to hurt myself in the process which is kind <laughs> of ironic yeah, yeah that's true <laughs> that's true yeah it takes a lot of temperance i think um but it's definitely really interesting um what are a few of your favorite excerpts for euphonium um excerpts well uh you're talking about like orchestral work yeah or orchestral and chamber or orchestral i guess chamber if you have any um and band excerpts what i was planning to do was ask excerpts solos concerti yeah um wow i don't know it, it's just i haven't really um been in you can talk band. about brass band too i mean like yeah the brass band no, it's, 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 it's good of course you know just sort of the traditional orchestral stuff um you know i'd, I'd love to play this because i've got to get to play it a number of times and I'll, I'll be playing it here it looks like um hopefully in the next year i got offered to so that's gonna be fun um you know I, I i love the music that i play you know um uh, and and so um some of the percussion stuff um has been you know fun for me um but uh, yeah, you know, it's just, I, I haven't really delved much into the um, uh, excerpt world. You know, I'm diabetic, so I've, I've not, um, have never been eligible for the military. And so I didn't really spend time um, on excerpts. You know, I never really practiced them other than, uh, well, you know, Dr. Bowman, you know, I definitely worked with him just for the ability to be able to teach them well and understand them. In, in terms of trying to perfect them to the point, you know, of winning an audition, that's just not been. Um, what not did you take away life. from your work with Dr. Bowman about excerpts? Uh, you know, with with him, his his level of detail is is so. Uh, I remember <laughs> the first couple of lessons I had with him, and I walked in, I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm doing stuff very well," and then it just there's just these, uh, you know another level and then another level on top of that i yeah. come back in 
all right, I'm ready. And then he he would sort of really uh, pick it apart. But but the ability, you know, for him, just with the experts, he, he excerpts, he lived in that world. Um, and, and, you know, audition of them, of course, performed a number of works. And of course, his students, I mean, my goodness, you know, sort of a who's who in military bands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just, you know, and not just the excerpts, but um, the, the level of detail in terms of um, all aspects of technical proficiency, but also musicality and things that I just had never really thought about. I, th I think my entire North Texas experience, and I mentioned something about, you know, um, Eugene Corporan's Wind Symphony, mm -hmm. is to be a part of something that takes you to a level that just hadn't been at. Um, yeah. And and that's stuff I've, I've taken with me on the podium for the, you know, the yeah. primary. So. I got to work with Dr. Corporan at the Music for All National Festival Honor Band in 2014, mm -hmm. I think. He's incredible. He's such oh, an yeah. awe-inspiring musician. Yeah, we um we played uh I can't remember if it was his concerto or his like an obligato marimba piece, but uh he invited Mark Ford to come and solo with the band and he played a couple of pieces. It was so fun. Yeah. yeah. It was a really rocking time. Yeah, he was unbelievable. And it, it's so interesting. Like, um when I meet percussion folks, I I can mention to them, like, yeah, I've performed with Mark Ford. Like, I could watch him play marimba all day. And they're like, wait, you know who that is? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, being down there around all those people, um, you know, it was really, really inspiring. And like I got to tell uh, folks, there's, there was so much coming through. And I'm sure that's the way at Illinois, too. But, you know, you just walk down the hallway and, oh, there's a guest artist, Viola, uh, yeah. giving a class. I'll step in. You walk out of there with a few nuggets, like, wow, you know, that's amazing. Walk down the hallway to something else, you yeah. know. I've been really trying to keep my eye on the schedule of the guest artists that are coming in. The problem I've run into is there's, there's so many, like balancing that with sleep and class and work and like all the other <laughs> stuff's going on. It's like, okay, like, I need to remember that I have to sleep and see my girlfriend sometimes. Yeah, Arno Bornkamp is coming in uh, a little later this semester. And I'm so excited. I don't know if you know who he is. He's like this really famous uh, Dutch saxophone player. I'm sorry. Up there. Oh, uh, I, I could. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Arno, I, I said I'm really excited for Arno Bornkamp to come later this spring. He's like this really famous uh, Dutch saxophonist. Um, if if you've ever okay. heard of a, if you've ever heard of, of a composer named Jakob Terveluis, he's like recorded almost all of his music. It's incredible. So that's good, man. I'll have to check some of that out for sure. Yeah, he, the the one I'd recommend is a piece called "Grab It." It was uh, written in 1999, and it's one. It's like a piece of standard, like super difficult tenor saxophone repertoire. Now it's incredible. It's uh, not safe for small ears, though. There's a lot of explicit <laughs> language in it, but it's really okay. cool. It samples um, the documentary "Scared Straight," and it's a piece for uh, tenor saxophone. And well, he says tenor saxophone and boombox because it was the 90s, but like it's tenor saxophone and electronics it's incredible and it, like all of his music is really driving really intense stuff um and there's a lot of like speech pattern elements to it um Jakob is uh, a, a former rock musician so it's a really interesting take on contemporary music it's really yeah, fun that's, that's fantastic yeah interesting um so uh why don't we talk about uh solos and concerti a little quick and then uh we can wrap up yeah, you know, I, I, again, it's been, uh, and I'll, I'll just, I'll just tell you, I've, I've been dealing with dystonia, mm -hmm. uh, and I've been dealing with dystonia for five, six years. What has that been like? Well, um, well, it's been tough, you know, um, and, and just, just, you know, to open up a little bit, uh, it just started to, you know, it was in 2018, um, just started to feel weak. Mm -hmm. my chops i don't really know how to describe it and then there's just things i i just wasn't able to to do well that i used to and then in within a, a matter of a couple of weeks um i got to the point where i could barely make a sound on the instrument oh my god yeah um and you know i think as musicians we um identify ourselves so closely with our musicianship and our abilities to play our instrument and so when something like that happens, uh, it, it, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but it, it felt like someone died, you know, yeah. it felt like a part of me died. A, a you lose part. a part of yourself. 
yeah. And I couldn't express myself uh, in that way. And there's a lot, I mean, I've, I've grown a lot uh, during this process of how to let go of that because that, that isn't me, you know, my plan doesn't define me. It doesn't define who I am. I am, I am who defines me. Yeah. And so anyway, I went to work with this fantastic uh, teacher. She's sort of kind of the resource, I guess you could say in terms of, um, of playing issues, uh, particularly dystonia, Jan Kagreis, who was on faculty. Yeah. And I worked with her for, you know, um, a year about roughly. And she really helped a lot. Um, it's essentially kind of a relearning how to do things differently. You have to sort of reroute. Um, yeah. And she was very encouraging and, and just, you know, really helped me progress. Um, and it got, you know, to the point where you know, the progress started to slow a little bit. And she was like, yeah, I was like, how much time are you, you know, spending on these exercises? Like, well, I run a business. I've got kids, you know, I have a job. I say, like, you know, an hour or so. Um, she's like, oh, you know, in my orchestral people, you know, they do like four or five hours. And I was like, well, yeah. well they invent the 28 hour day. That's, that's just not going to happen for me. Yeah. But what yeah. What I've discovered is um, to be perfectly honest, the less I care, the better it gets. And that's awesome. Uh, you know, I just sort of let go of some of those um, self identification sort of things. And it's got better. I, I play pretty well now. I'm, I'm not in recital shape. Um, I don't know if that'll ever be something that I do um, again. I guess I'll yeah. never close the door to anything. But so in terms of, you know, recent, um, you know, uh, concerto work, um, that is not something I've explored much in my own playing. Uh, so I can't really speak. Have you done a lot of listening? Um, I, I do a lot of listening to music. But not a lot of you don't. I don't listen to a lot of euphonium. Yeah, <laughs> full disclosure, I don't really either. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I I love I love hearing the, the great artists. You know, um, and again, I, I hate to start naming names because you always leave people out. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, uh, yeah. And when I go to conferences, I hear these sorts of things. But mm -hmm. you know, to me, it's, it's it's stuff I used to play and sort of the older things um, that I used to do, sort of. So see the Genesis album. It's not been a part of, <laughs> part of what I do, you know, in terms yeah. of what I what I do anymore. So yeah. I hate I hate to leave your question like that, That's but okay. uh, you know, um, I can ask a different question. What do you find yourself listening to right now, like uh, in your day to day life? Yeah, um, you know, I enjoy listening to to brass band stuff. I get you know try to mm -hmm. pick up ideas and different things. Um, well, I mean, I, like even non academic music. I mean, like what's the music that gets you going? Yeah, um, you know, I listen to, um, quite honestly, I like a lot of the uh, 60s Motowns and funk, you know, Heck like yeah. Tower of Power and things like that. I love Tower of Power. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's just stuff. And those, those bands, those, those horn lines were tight, man. You yeah, know, they were. Clinic there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoy listening to jazz, not anything specific, but um, it's just, you know, something different. I, I enjoy listening yeah. to. Um, I'm kind of on a Freddie Hubbard kick right now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, I listen to children's music more than I care to admit with two young kids and my wife's an elementary yeah. music teacher, so there's a lot of that going oh, that's on. That's awesome. Um, but, you know, I just, man, I, my life is so busy right now. You know, sure. um, I conduct a symphony orchestra, I conduct a wind band, and I conduct a uh, professional brass band. So a lot of what I listen to is sort of, you know, a lot of rep to try to select from there and what I'm studying. And yeah. um, it's just a lot of different things, so... How did you come to start working with the symphony orchestra? Well, um, you know, I, I was hired here um, and, and at High Point University, and they had mentioned to me in an interview, oh, you know, we're looking to sort of build a, because um, this department is very young, uh, and the, the department didn't really exist for much more, five, six, seven years before I got here, and they didn't have an orchestra. And oh. so it came to the point where they really wanted to, to develop this group. So they asked me to do it. And so I started it uh, and it's got a great model because uh, our faculty are paid per service as part of their teaching load. So Whoa. faculty play principal in the group. And so that's awesome. Yeah. So the core of it is professional. And uh, of course, our students, we don't have a big enough department to fill a full string section. So um, and for the strings and for the winds, we open it up to the community. But it's a, it's 80, 90 strong uh, right now. That's awesome. Of, uh, yeah. And we're doing great rep and um 
I'm really proud of that group. Actually, uh, we've really come a long way in terms of um, not only our performance level, but also just, you know, how it's supported and represent the community that we live. Yeah. That, so I had an idea last fall that's an ensemble very similar to that, where I was thinking about like trying to come up with a really efficient conservatory model to build like the, like to help the, level of young musicians coming into a program get really, really high, really fast. Yeah. And one of my thoughts was having an ensemble where faculty and students play together. Uh, but m my idea was, wouldn't it be cool to have the faculty play like second or third part instead of first part? I mean, obviously, like we want them to be really involved with the parts, but like you want to empower the young musicians too, or maybe figure out a way to alternate it. So I guess um, the question I have is, what what has the pedagogy been like? And what have you seen as far as the growth of the students in that kind of an ensemble? Because it no, sounds fascinating. Yeah, I mean, but the point you bring up is a good one, and that that's what we do as well. The faculty or principal, but a lot of times they'll flip, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in, in different sections. Um, just you know, when the student is ready for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. to have that. But no, I mean, we we refer to it as a teaching orchestra. Um, you know, and and the, the faculty are there. They're playing principal. They'll turn around and give advice and things during a, a session. We break for some of that for a minute or two while while that sort of thing is happening. And for the student to be in the studio uh, with the professor, and of course is, you know, obviously important, but um, instead of telling them this is how you function in an ensemble or professional mm -hmm. style environment, actually being in there with them. And it's not just yes. the playing, it's how do I behave in a rehearsal? Yeah. How do I approach rehearsals how do I um, approach, you know, performance and sort yeah. of that whole experience is something that is missing for so many. Um, and so that that's been a big part of the growth of, of the students in there. And of course, they're sitting right next to, you know, my concert master, my top violinist is, you know, stand partner right there. And, and so uh, learning how to listen in an ensemble, match, pitch and these different things, yeah. we can talk about it. Not to mention how to operate in a professional setting in a way that's modeled. You don't have to spend time talking about it because they can just watch. Good, <laughs> and it's it's been it's been a really rewarding experience um, for them, even more so than what I initially had thought when we set up the model. That's incredible. So. Um, how has that affected the culture of the school of music? Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 helped grow um, what we're doing. I mean the department is small, uh, and and we have grown, and um, but just that integration there of of faculty and students um, working together, and also the community. You know, I mean we have great folks from the community coming in and learning from them as well. A lot of, a lot of them come in. We have professionals that just want to support a community group and they come in and play. That's awesome. And folks that have, you know, from other walks of life that do other things uh, and share their life experiences. And many, many of our students, uh, they double major in music and yeah. the other major is, our music many times is the other major. And I have yeah. no problems with that, you know. Uh, they're wanting to explore uh, these different things. So I got a great cellist She's fantastic, and she's also studying neuroscience. Yeah, one of the yeah. one of the things I've been really struck about the the band department here at Illinois is the amount of students that uh, like went to Allstate in high school, were at like a really kicking program, and then came to Illinois to study engineering. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I really want to play in the concert band, or I really want to play in marching Illini. And it just the baseline of the group is elevated so much by those kinds of musicians, and I there's there's a certain special something that enthusiasm that they bring that like, because this is what they do for fun. Yes. It's their yes. way of escaping like the, whether it's tedium or rigor, whatever it is of the other things that they do. And there's a, a primal power to that musicianship that I think can get missed sometimes when it's all you do and all you live and breathe. Yeah, I think they're less jaded for sure. <laughs> oh, almost definitely. <laughs> but like the, I think like, well, it's like you said when you take it a little less seriously, it, it's not so it's not so bad because you're not devoting so much of like this time and attention and importance to it in a way that's 
degenerative as opposed because you can approach it wholesomely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and absolutely, and and I think um, you know these are brilliant kids, man. You know, yeah. brilliant students, uh, and and they're you know their musicianship reflects their intellect um, and their creativity. So, so yeah, yeah. It's it's I get to work with a, a definitely a, a wide body of students every day with varied interests, and it it's nothing else that makes my job more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And well, and I like having a lot of enthusiasm around that. That's the thing I loved the most about teaching marching band this year. It's like, it really keeps you young. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I love college teaching. You know, yeah. I, you know, I work with uh, mostly undergraduates, you know, our, our, we don't have a graduate school in our program. And I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. Um, the people that I work with, you know, the students, they smile a lot, you know, yeah. they, the whole world's in front of them, like, like you, Andrew, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an oyster, right? It's a, so, yeah. um, and, and so they, they just have a lot of positive energy, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, positive outlook on, on, on their future. And I think, um, it's just important to be around people like that. And so too. people who are not like that can really drag things down. And so, yeah, definitely. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Dr. Mike Snow, thanks for mu so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Andrew, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Uh, do you want people to follow you on social media? You can share that now if you'd like. Uh, if not, it's no big deal. Um, yeah, you know, I don't have any uh, page other than my own personal Facebook page. Check out our uh, North Carolina Brass Band stuff. Um, we've got you know some great things out there on YouTube. Also, the High Point University Department of Music. Check us out on YouTube as well. We've got some good recordings there. Awesome, awesome. Other things. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trick Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.